If you have a Bible, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're a visitor with us, we normally just kind of work through a book of the Bible and teach what God has there, try to explain it and apply it. And um, if you have been gone, if you were missing last week, I know this is high holy hunting season, um, make sure you get a copy of the message, especially if you're a guy. I talked about uh, sexual purity, and it is a battle for most of us guys, and I hope that message will be helpful to you. You can pick up the printed copy or listen to it online. This morning, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and uh, there's a printed outline in your bulletin. There are complete manuscripts of the message available at both exits, and that goes for All of the printed and audio messages are on the church website as well. The Apostle Paul, writing to this new Christian church centered in a pagan environment, says, Now as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but We urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The student once walked into the office of Dr. Howard Hendricks at uh, Dallas Seminary and announced, Prof, I'm dropping out of seminary. Oh, really, why? Uh, asked Dr. Hendricks. Well, because I'm convinced that the Lord is going to return soon, and uh, I want to get involved in ministry before he comes. Dr. Hendricks, in his typical wisdom, said, Well, if there's something that you ought to be doing before the Lord comes back, then you better get doing it. Now, he didn't mean drop out of school and go out and preach on the streets. If he meant that, he wouldn't have been committed to doing what he did there at Dallas Seminary of preparing young men for ministry. But what he was saying was, while every one of us should be living with an expectancy that the Lord could come back at any time, at the same time, there needs to be kind of a normalcy about our lives Martin Luther is reputed to have said, if I knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. It's that balance between expecting he's coming and yet just living our lives as he calls us to do. Throughout church history, there have always been both individuals and groups who get carried away with the hope of the Lord's coming to the extent that they kind of do some strange Things Some have sold everything, uh, quit their jobs, literally gone out and sat on a hilltop on the designated date and waited for the Lord to come. And of course, he didn't. Um, if you were around when Harold Camping was popular, he wrote a booklet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. He had to modify that in 1989. And in subsequent years, uh, 
You, some of you remember, too, all the hype that went around with the Y2K, and everyone was convinced there would be the Armageddon meltdown and that Jesus must be coming shortly thereafter. And here we are 16 years later. Well, apparently, some of the Thessalonian people had gotten a bit carried away with the teaching Paul had given them that the Lord was going to return. Uh, Some of them may have quit their jobs and decided they needed to go out and spread the uh, message about the end of the world. But, of course, they had some needs. And, uh, well, the brothers are here for that, aren't they? The brothers and sisters, if I have needs... Aren't they supposed to love me and help me out? And so they're sponging off the church. Now, this problem was probably in its early form when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. Timothy had come back and said, there seems to be a little problem with that. By the time he writes 2 Thessalonians, it had ballooned out a bit. So he devotes a good part of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians to dealing with it. But in our text, Paul is giving some very practical examples Uh, instructions about how to live until the Lord comes back. And he's saying that we need to work at, at loving one another more, and we should be showing God's love uh, by our behavior at work. So to make it shorter, we should work at love, and we should love at work. Those two things. First of all, let's look at how we should be working at loving one another more. That's in verses 9 and 10. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And then he commends them, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul began his letter commending the Thessalonians for their labor of love in verse 3 of chapter 1, but he doesn't want them to rest on their laurels and just say, hey, we got that down, we're doing okay. Love is a most important quality. And so, uh, three things here to point out about loving one another. First of all, loving one another should be the distinguishing mark of a local church. In contrast to what Paul wrote about lust in verses 3 through 8, he now turns to Christian love. And it may be that in that culture, as in ours, a lot of people confuse the two. Lust is never loving because it's always self-centered, as we saw last week. But Paul here says Christians should not be characterized by um, passions and lusts as the world is, but rather by pure Christian love. He uses the word in verse 9, Philadelphia, the love of the brethren. As you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it was used in secular Greek to refer to uh, the love that happens naturally between brothers and sisters in a family. But in the New Testament, it's applied to the love that should exist between we who are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Um, Paul here, as I said, was not correcting them and saying you guys are lacking in love, but he's stirring them up, spurring them on to excel even more. 
Leon Morris in his commentary observes something which should give modern Christians much food for thought is the way in which the early church was characterized by love. Behold, how these Christians love one another is hardly the comment which springs spontaneously to the lips of the detached observer nowadays. But if our manner of life was based on the New Testament picture, something like it would be inevitable. As you know, in the upper room, Jesus commanded the disciples to love one another even as he loved them. And then he went on in John thirteen thirty five to say, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He also said love is the second greatest commandment after loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love our neighbor. The Apostle Paul said love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you want to fulfill God's law, Paul says love. And John, who was known as the Apostle of Love, wrote in 1 John 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then in verse 14, he adds, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And so he's there setting love for one another up as a means of assurance of our salvation. But the point is simply Love isn't optional. Genuine love for one another should be the mark of the church. A second thing to note about love is that God is the one who teaches us about loving one another. Again, in verse 9, he says, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, as we saw last time in verse 8, he mentions that God gives his Holy Spirit to you, to live within you. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says that the, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he gives to us. And so when he says that the Thessalonians are taught by God to love one another, I believe he's referring to that ministry of the Spirit of God who comes to dwell within us when we trust in Christ. And the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see the great sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross when he died for us. In 1 John, we sang this at the beginning of the service, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, John again says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, he's the source of it, And everyone who loves is born of God, so there's the evidence again of the new birth, and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so God teaches us to love, and we see his love more, I think, than anywhere else in the cross. You're all familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever uh, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In the same vein, Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, 
It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, years ago, based on that and other verses, I tried to come up with a definition of love because, again, it's kind of a vague term that we all go, yeah, I think I'm there. But I think this definition fits and flows out of all these verses. Love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Let me work through that with you for a moment. God so loved that he gave, and Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and that means love is self-sacrificing. Selfishness is the enemy of biblical love, and we're all inherently selfish. So to love others, you've got to continually confront your selfishness and try to think of others' needs ahead of your own. Husbands are exhorted to love their wives, even as Christ loved us, and then Paul adds, and gave himself up for us. That's a self-sacrificing love. Now, as a husband, it's easy to sit here and kind of grandstand, and you say, oh, I'd lay down my life for, for my wife. I mean, if she were being attacked, you know, I'd come to her aid. Well, yeah, I hope so. But that probably isn't going to happen in your lifetime, I hope. What about the daily acts of sacrifice that show you love your wife? You know, what about sacrificing your time? Or what about inconveniencing yourself? You're sitting there watching the game on TV and she's swamped in the kitchen with a lot of need for help. Do you sacrifice those little things to say, yeah, she's got a need, I'll come and help meet her need. It's, it's that daily small things where biblical love has to show itself. In other words, it's not just sitting in your easy chair thinking, oh, I love my wife. It's demonstrating it in practical action. That's the idea. Also, love is caring, and that's the emotional aspect of love. I put that in there because I've met people who say, well, love is a mental attitude. Well, yeah, it is, but it's more than that. It really sincerely cares for the other person and their well-being. And love is a caring commitment. Um, it is, it's a, a commitment. Like in marriage, it's a lifelong covenant or commitment in sickness and in health, in riches, poverty, all of that that we all vow to. Um, but I put the commitment part in there because... Let's be honest, in marriage or in relationships, you don't always feel loving. Sometimes you got a headache or, you know, you're tired or grumpy or whatever. You're still called to love at those times, even if the feelings aren't there. And that's where the commitment kicks in to say, you know, I am committed to this person. Uh, and so you should act on love even when you don't feel it. And then the commitment is love seeks the highest good of the one loved. And the highest good for every person is that they would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and be conformed to his image, that they would grow in Christ's likeness. 
And that means sometimes love has to gently correct. But that's your aim. That's your goal, is you're committed to that person's uh, ultimate well-being in Christ. And our model, again, is our Lord and Savior who gave himself for us on the cross while we were yet sinners. And the person you love is a sinner. They're not perfect, but you love them and you help them to become what God wants them to be. So love should be, then, the distinguishing mark of the church. God himself teaches us to love one another and points us to the cross, gives us his spirit. Uh, The third thing, love is an action that always requires improvement. Um, Paul has repeatedly in this book commended their love, and he's not telling them here, you guys aren't loving, but he says you are, but you can do better. You can do better, and the reason we can always do better in love is because our standard is perfect. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can say, I love as Christ loves? None of us can. So there's always room to love your mate more. There's always room to love your kids more. There's always room to love your family members more. There's always room to love your coworkers or your neighbors, people you know more. We all have room to grow in that. And uh, it's not automatic. You know, you meet people once in a while. Oh, I'm just naturally loving. No, you're not. You know, nobody is naturally loving. We're all naturally self-centered. And so you've got to deliberately work at it with thought and effort. And I would say, if you don't give some thought from time to time about how can I love those around me, those in my sphere, more you're probably not growing in this quality. It it requires some thought and some effort. One practical way you can work on it is this. Go to the verses that we read out loud as a congregation earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through first part of verse 8. And get an index card and write that on there and keep it by your breakfast table. And every morning... Read that over and over and over and over until it begins to govern your relationships for that day with your your wife or husband, with your kids, with your roommate if you're single, with the people you're going to meet during the day. And uh, ask yourself some hard questions about each quality. The first one, love is patient. Why did he put that first? Ah, You know, I'm not patient. I want things my way, and I want it now. And so love is patient. And ask yourself, would my family or coworkers describe me as a patient person? Or do I have a short fuse I need to lengthen a lot? Second quality, love is kind. Love is kind. Am I kind to others? Am I gracious toward them? Especially when they fall short of my expectations. Thirdly, love is not jealous. Am I competing with others by wanting to get the attention, the relationships, or the possessions that they have? Paul says love does not brag and is not arrogant. Question there, am I self-focused? Am I always trying to impress others with my achievements and my opinions and my knowledge and so on? He says, love does not act unbecomingly. Am I rude, insensitive 
toward others? Do I interrupt other people? Uh, Am I considerate of their feelings and their points of view? Love, he says, does not seek its own. This is the selfishness factor. Am I selfish? Or am I thinking about how would I feel if, if I were them? Or what needs do I see that they have that I can anticipate and meet? That kind of thing. Love is not provoked. Am I easily offended? Uh, do I get angry when people don't do what I want them to do? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Do I keep score? Yeah, they owe me one. You know, or, or am I reminding them of their past sins or failures? Am I holding grudges? Am I quick to forgive? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Am I secretly glad when others fail because, uh, number one, it makes me look good, and uh, number two, I can use it as ammunition against them the next time. Nah, I saw what you did, that kind of thing. Or am I truly happy when I hear of others' victories in the Lord? I say, wow, that is great to hear how God worked in your life. Paul says, love bears all things. Do I bear with people in their immaturity and in their shortcomings? Or do I always just pounce on them and correct them? Love believes all things. That doesn't mean being gullible, but it does mean, am I suspicious of people in a wrong way? Or do I trust them unless there's good reason not to? Love hopes all things. Do I write people off or do I believe God can work to change that other person? And then uh, love never fails. Do I give up on others, uh, especially when they wrong me or hurt me? Uh, Am I committed to help that person become all that God wants him or her to be? Now, even if others that know you say, yeah, he's a loving person, she's a loving person, Paul is saying here, good, but Jesus is perfect, and you got room to grow, and so keep working at it because our standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was concerned not only for love showing in our homes, it ought to there, and in our church, it certainly should here, but he wanted it to spill over into the world. He wants it to be seen in the workplace. Uh, The connection between verses 9 and 10, where Paul exhorts us to work at love, and verses 11 and 12, um, the connection is not immediately obvious, and a lot of commentators puzzle over it. He connects them just with the conjunction and, but it seems to me Paul is showing us first how we should be working at love, and then in verses 11 and 12, he's showing us how we should be Loving at work, that is, showing God's love to those at work. And so the second part of our text is that we should be showing God's love by our behavior at work, verses 11 and 12. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave or literally walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Four things I want to point out there. First of all, 
Showing God's love at work requires goal-oriented behavior, not mindless just drifting with the culture. So what is your goal at work? Well, maybe you say, well, to provide for my family, and that's a worthy goal because in 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, if you don't work to provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever and have denied the faith. That's a pretty serious warning that he gives. But if your only goal at work is to provide for your family, how are you any different than the world? Because that's why the world works. You know, if they didn't have to provide, they wouldn't work. So they work to provide for all the stuff their family wants and needs. Um, Paul says, make it your ambition, and that implies a goal and some effort toward that goal. And I believe that he's saying the goal isn't climb the corporate ladder or uh, make a, a pile of money, be a success, or beat your competitors. The goal, rather is that we all should be a godly witness in the workplace. I'm reading uh, Daryl Miller's book, Life Work, right now, and it's a good book about your work. And he says this, As the so-called developed world enters the 21st century, too often we Westerners find that the secular worldview has reduced work to a career, and life to an endless consuming of things. As a result, we live without hope and purpose, and both our work and our life itself carry little, if any, meaning. When we see our worth is determined by the marketplace and the amount of money we make, we often sacrifice what matters most, friends, a family, friends, marriages, Christian fellowship, in pursuit of success, prestige, fame, power, and other goals prized by the world. And so what Paul is saying when he says make it your ambition is you need to think biblically about your goals at work, and you're not there just to make a pile of money or be successful. You're there to display the love of Jesus to those who have no hope. They don't know him. And uh, they think, well, if I make a lot of money, I'm going to be happy. And this guy here doesn't seem to be living for that. What's with him? And so you demonstrate to them, by your behavior, uh, the love of Christ. A second thing to note here is that the means for showing God's love at work, then, is to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. And so the big question is, well, what does Paul mean by leading a quiet life? Uh, he uses a similar phrase in 1 Timothy 2.2, where he says we should be praying for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Peter uses a similar phrase when he's enjoining wives who have unbelieving husbands to bear witness to them by their godly behavior. And specifically, he tells them, you should do it with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, in both contexts, the concern is witness in the world. And it's not through preaching, it's through behavior that demonstrates contentment in Christ and peace in Christ. 
And Paul says, because we are content with food and covering and are not desiring to get rich in 1 Timothy 6, then in the marketplace we can exude that quiet sense of contentment in Christ. We're not in the same rat race everyone else is in to collect the most toys so we can win. We are in him, and we demonstrate by our behavior then um, a difference that Christ makes. When he says attend to your own business, I think he means we shouldn't be busybodies or gossips. It's not that we shouldn't be caring and concerned. We should be for others. And so if someone at work comes to you with a concern, certainly as you have opportunity, listen to it. And if appropriate, outside of work, pray for them. Um, But what he means is don't blab confidential information all over the workplace. Don't be like everybody else. When they get a juicy thing, they're out sharing it with others and gossiping. Don't do that. Be a confidential person they can trust if they confide in you. And the idea in both phrases is at work, we should be a witness primarily through our behavior, uh, not through verbal witness on the job. The third thing to note here is that the motivation then for showing God's love at work, is to see the God-given dignity of work that's done for his glory. Paul was writing in a culture where manual labor was despised by the upper classes. They owned slaves, and that's what slaves do. They, they do the manual labor, and uh, they wouldn't touch that kind of work. The Bible, however, shows that God gave Adam and Eve manual labor to do in the garden before the fall. They had to take care of the garden. And uh, down through the Old Testament, many men of God were farmers. They were shepherds. They they did those kinds of jobs. Uh, Paul himself, as you know, made tents. He tells slaves that they should do their menial jobs as unto the Lord. And even our Savior, when he came, was a carpenter. Now, Paul isn't saying you can't have a a so-called white-collar job, an executive job, or a professional job, or that. But he is saying, if your job isn't that, it still has dignity because God is the one who gives us work to do. Now, there are Christians who erroneously view work as a curse, But the curse in the garden wasn't on work. The curse was on the ground. Yeah, sin made work harder. God cursed the ground, but he never cursed work. And uh, if we do our work unto the Lord, even a menial job can have meaning. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get a job that's more satisfying to you. That's fine. But the point is, if you view work as a curse... I just endure it to get the money so I can get out of here for the weekend kind of attitude. You'll not work well. You won't do your job as under the Lord. Uh, You'll slack off, and uh, you'll just try to avoid work. So that hinders witness, and Paul here is concerned about witness. Remember what he told Christian slaves, as we saw in Colossians 3.23? I mean, that's the most menial job you can come up with. And he said, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. 
Well, why? Well, that leads to the last thing. The aim at showing God's love at work is that we would be a witness to outsiders and that we would provide for our own needs. He says, so that you will behave or literally walk properly towards outsiders. That means that our witness to unbelievers on the job by our behavior should always be uppermost in our mind. Um, Some Christians err by witnessing verbally on company time. Unless your boss hired you to be the Billy Graham of the office, you shouldn't be witnessing on company time, okay? Except by your behavior. People should look at your life and see that it's different. You know, he doesn't seem to be striving for the things I'm striving for. He seems to have a contentment and a peace that I'm lacking. This is how the unbeliever would think as they look at you. He's not greedily trying to take advantage of others and step on them to get ahead in the company. He always tells the truth. And he's honest. He doesn't steal. And he works hard. And he's concerned about others. And as they see these Christian qualities, as you work, you're walking properly toward outsiders, eventually they're going to say, hey, what gives with you? Hey, let me take you out to lunch. And on non-company time, that's when you tell them the difference that Christ makes. When Paul says you should not be in any need, I think he means we should be responsible managers of our income. We should pay our bills. We should live within our means. Uh, We should be generous and ready to share. And we shouldn't be mooching off the government unless you have a legitimate disability or something. uh, you, You shouldn't be trying to take advantage of the system, but rather you should be working so that you can help provide for others who have genuine needs. But again, your fellow workers should look at you and be able to say, wow, that guy lives simply. He doesn't make that much, but he seems not to be in debt and stressed out over debt all the time. He's living within his means. How does he do that? Again, an opportunity for off-the-job witness. Uh, May I suggest, if you've never done so, you take the uh, financial peace course that we offer here that teaches Christians how to get out of debt, stay out of debt, live within a budget, and uh, have money to give generously as a Christian. Let me add, too, you're not living in love as a Christian if you come to the church thinking, well, my brothers and sisters can help me out. That They're commanded to love me. Um, you're commanded to work. You know, if somebody won't work, Paul will say in Second Thessalonians 3, he shouldn't eat. You're commanded to work and you're commanded to live within your means. So Paul is saying then, we need to work at loving. We need to work diligently at loving one another. And we need to be loving at work. That is to show the love of God through our behavior, Christ-like behavior on the job. As I was thinking about an illustration that would apply this, I... uh, thought about a short story I read years ago from the Russian author Leo Tolstoy. I don't know if Tolstoy was a Christian, but he writes some good 
stories with Christian morals to them. And he's got a story called Where Love Is, God Is. It's a story about a lonely old Russian cobbler, a shoe repairman. He's lost his wife. All of his kids have died through disease. And he's left all alone. And he's lonely and depressed. And another man directs him to the Bible and tells him he needs to begin reading the Gospels. And he does. And it changes his life. And uh, one night, he's about to retire, and he's reading Luke 7 about the Pharisee who was rude toward Jesus when he came to him for lunch. He didn't welcome him into his home. And this old cobbler wondered, if Jesus came to my home, would I welcome him? He didn't know if it was by a dream or a vision or what, but suddenly he heard someone calling his name, Martin, Martin, look out in the street tomorrow, for I will come to you. Well, the next day on the job, he he keeps watch out of his window. He had a, a basement cobbler shop that had a window up there on the sidewalk level, and so he kept looking out. He saw a poor old man shoveling the snow out there. It was cold. And he invited him in and had him sit by his fire, and he gave him some hot tea. And he told the man about Christ's mercy as he had been learning it through the Gospels. And the old man, he told, had tears running down his cheek. And as he left, he thanked him for his hospitality and for sharing all of that with him. He goes back to his mending shoes, and he looks out the window and sees a young woman who's dressed kind of shabbily, and she's in summer-type clothing, not in winter clothing, and she's got a crying baby in her arms, and she's trying to keep the baby warm, and he goes out and invites her to come in and warm herself by his fire, and he learns that the woman is destitute, and she just pawned her shawl the day before just to get food, and so Martin feeds her and her baby, and he gives her a coat to keep her baby warm, and gives her the money to go get her shawl out of pawn. Well, later in the day, he helped reconcile a poor old woman who was selling apples and a little boy who stole one of the apples, and he got him to give the apple back and ask forgiveness and her to grant forgiveness. And the day went on like that, and as the day ended, he had not seen Christ appear. So now it's evening, he he lights his lamp, And he was planning to read where he had left off in Luke chapter 8 the next night. But his Bible fell open to another place. And before he started reading, he heard a voice call out, Martin, it is I. And he turned and he looked and he saw the poor old man who had been shoveling snow and he disappeared. And the same thing happened with the woman and her baby. And then with the woman and the boy who had taken the apple. And then his eyes fell down to the text. In Matthew 25, he read, I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. And then at the bottom of the page, he read, Inasmuch as ye did it unto uh, one of these my brethren, even the least, Ye did it unto me. And then Tolstoy, 
concludes the story by writing, and Martin understood that his dream had come true and that the Savior had really come to him that day and he had welcomed him. And that poor old cowboy was doing what we're supposed to do on the job, simply showing by our behavior the love of Jesus to those who don't need the Savior. And so there are two applications of the message today. First of all, we all need to be working at love. And the second, we all need to be loving at work. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us all to apply this short but very applicable section of your word, that our homes would radiate the love of Christ to those who know us, to those who come in contact with us. And then as we go out into the world, that we would be loving at work, showing Christ to those who have no hope, to those who are living self-centeredly for all the stuff this world offers, that they would see a different model in us, and that as we have opportunity, we would give verbal witness about the Savior who has made a difference in our lives. I pray, Lord, if any are here who don't know that Savior, that you would open their hearts to see their need, that they are under your judgment because of sin, but that they would see your great love that you sent your own Son to bear the judgment that we deserve, and that they would put their trust in Jesus as the one to bear their sin. And we'll give you thanks for how you work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.